Well, welcome, everyone. I get to say welcome. This is a great morning, a great uh, place to be. We are glad you're here with us in person, in the room, outside, uh, at the outdoor venue. If you are uh, joining us online, uh, either live or later in the week, we're so glad that you are here and have, have chosen to worship with us as part of Nova. We are a couple of weeks now into our new series in the New Testament book of First John. First John is such a great book, and there's so much in there to glean from and learn from and apply to our lives as we walk with and follow Jesus. And our journey through the pages of 1 John so far have already taught us about who Jesus is, about walking in the light is a phrase you may remember. We've learned about both obedience and justice as we love God and as we love others. In our time today, we're going to jump right in, right into the text and continue to learn from John as he writes two followers of Jesus. And our passage today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You can turn there in your Bible or bookmark it in a mobile device, uh, a digital device. Uh, The passage is also included in our sermon notes, which can be found on our website or through the Nova Community Church app. As I said, though, we're going to just jump right in. And so I'm going to read our passage today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. John writes, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen. This is God's word through John to readers then and to us today. And here we have a passage that might seem at first glance somewhat out of place, like it doesn't really fit in the flow of John's letter, if you're following that flow. And for our passage, it's almost like John is pausing in his thought before he's going to jump right back in again. But this kind of pause, it's for good reason, though. John paused to assure his readers of what he believed to be true about their faith, He wanted them to be reminded and reassured as they walk with Jesus, and he wants the same for us. Now, this pause is not just important for understanding the structural idea of the letter. It's it's more important are the things like who is being addressed, what John is saying, why he's saying it. So who is John addressing? You may have noticed there's three different terms that he uses to identify who he's writing to, children, fathers, and young men. And each group is addressed twice. Yes, I didn't read it twice. It's actually in there twice. I mean, I read it twice because it's in there twice. I didn't repeat myself by accident. So why does John address his readers this way? Is he talking to three groups of people? Are these terms to be taken literally? Perhaps they should be, but perhaps not. This is another one of those passages in this letter of John, in 1 John, where even some of the scholars don't necessarily agree 
with what's going on and why he's doing what he's doing. But I think we know that terms like this, a term like children, can be used in a non-literal sense. In fact, other terms throughout John's letter and throughout the Bible and the New Testament are used this way. Christian terms, maybe we call them, like children, brothers, sisters, right? These can be used in a non-literal sense. And if John is applying this idea, then I think he has in mind more general uses for these terms, most likely referring to all believers or groups of believers. And so his terms would not be referenced to literal children or fathers or young men, but to different categories of believers, with each category representing different stages in the life of a believer, a follower of Jesus. Children would be new believers. Fathers would be older believers. And young men would be what I'm going to call maturing believers. They're somewhere in that middle ground. And all of this makes complete sense, especially given the fact that he's writing a letter directed to a wider audience. He's addressing them in terms, you might say, of spiritual maturity and not just chronological age. And he wants all of his readers to understand this and to be reminded and reassured. Now here I want to take a slight little sidebar and just kind of note something. We shouldn't think that John only has in mind the men in his congregation by using these terms. This kind of brings up the question I was thinking about over the last couple of weeks, honestly. Why does the Bible sometimes use masculine terms in this generic sense? Why can children be referred to as sons, but in the Bible not generally referred to as daughters, if you're, if you're only using one term? And I'll start by saying that after looking into this and diving in and studying, there's not really a clear definitive answer as to why this happens. But there's some thoughts we can think about. It is apparent in the culture of the biblical writers that it was standard practice back then to use that masculine form of a word for the generic use of the word, rather than mentioning both the masculine and the feminine. Why this is the case, we may not know specifically, and that might be a whole other topic altogether, but this was how people thought and taught. It was how they talked. It was what was commonly accepted at that time, and it actually continued on, quite frankly, for centuries into our more modern era. And it's only in much more recent history that people have grown in this area and changed. With learning and interpreting the Bible, I want to mention here again something that I've said before, if you've been around Nova for any amount of time with me. The context of a passage is very important in understanding the meaning behind that passage. Just like the three rules of real estate, at least years ago I learned, are location, location, and location, the three rules of biblical interpretation could be said to be context, context, and context. It's very helpful to know that context helps determine the meaning. And what this means is in places where something is clearly referring to the masculine, then we interpret it to mean the masculine. But in places where the masculine word is used, but the context reveals it to mean both masculine and feminine, then we interpret it to mean both. The Apostle Paul does does this all the time throughout his letters, and his custom was to address adults widely with the term brothers, all along implying, though, that he has this entire Christian church in mind, women included. So Paul often actually means brothers and sisters. 
Some of our more modern translations of the Bible include that in there as well. That's the idea. And that same idea, I think, is what's going on here with John. It's clear that the Bible is written for both men and women. Absolutely clear. But the language can sometimes be a bit confusing. Now, why do I mention this? Because maybe you're reading through a part of Scripture sometime, maybe even like this passage today. And you might be thinking something like, well, I'm not a child. This says children, so it's not referring to me. I'm not a father. This doesn't mean me. And what I'm telling you is, in some places, it does. These terms include you as a follower of Jesus. This passage is for you because John doesn't only have in mind the men. So that's the little sidebar. So what of these different groups that John is addressing? If we stop and think about it, every local church has within its congregation these different groups of believers. And John writes to each group of believers for a different reason and one that was appropriate for where they are on their spiritual journey, their spiritual maturity level, if you will. And he wants to give these reminders and reassurances of their faith. And we'll see this through the three different groups that he addresses. First, John addresses the children in verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The children in the faith have assurance because their sins have been forgiven. This is that beginning of the Christian life. And it's the foundation for the new life we have in Jesus. And the language John uses for this idea, have been forgiven, it's notable because it's in the perfect tense. I'm not just describing a tense that is perfect. It's actually called the perfect tense. John writes using the perfect tense of this verb, this action, being forgiven. The perfect tense emphasizes, if you don't know what it means, it emphasizes a present ongoing result of a completed action. So something that happened in the past, it's done, but it has a present and an ongoing result that continues on into the future. That's the perfect tense. This means that their sins were forgiven in the past, but the result of that remains now and continues on into the future forever. That's forgiveness. And this is something that's true for all believers. It's especially something that newer believers in Jesus or children in the faith need to be reminded of. Children represent the less mature, you might say, those who do not have a lot of experience behind them walking after Jesus. There's always in the church some people who are first and, and foremost in this just very simple stage of their Christian life. They know God. They know the Father. And that's where they're at. They're young in their faith, and they're looking ahead to a life of striving after and following after Jesus. And so if children represents the less mature in the faith, I'd say fathers represents the more mature in the faith, or the very mature. Those who are able to look back on a long life of following after Jesus. In verse 13, John writes, I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And that's repeated word for word also in verse 14. Fathers are said to have known him from the beginning. Known the father doesn't just signify head knowledge, something we just know in our heads. It's really more of a relational experience kind of knowledge. All believers know Jesus, 
But mature believers know him in a deeper sense because they have followed after him longer. And this idea, have known the Father, it's also notably in the perfect tense. It's another thing that's already been completed and continues on as they're doing it. That's something that can be said for both children and fathers. But there's also another group, something in the middle, something he calls and refers to as the young men. And part of verse 13, John writes, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And towards the end of verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. This middle group are those that have some experience of the Christian life, enough to prepare them for dealing with the duties and difficulties, the temptations that might come in life as they follow Jesus. I was trying to put my finger on an idea about this this week. Think about it this way. When someone's reached maybe 30, 35 years old, actual age in life, they're in a sense prepared for life, even though they might be considered by some to only be partly mature. The unexpected things in life might happen, but the experiences that a 30 or 35-year-old have gone through will have prepared them uh, to deal wisely with almost all circumstances that are going to come in life, at least generally speaking. None of us have gone through everything. And so that's this group. They're not new to their faith. This group has not yet developed the years of growing older with their beliefs to look back on. They find themselves right in the middle here. And John reminds them that they have already overcome the evil one. And here we have, guess what? The perfect tense again. The overcoming of the evil one. It's something that has already been completed and continues on into their future as they follow Jesus. Friends, I've read the end of the story. The evil one does not win. You know what? Best spoiler alert ever, right? If you've read through to the end of the Bible, you know that Satan doesn't win. Every local church has these different groups of believers, children, fathers, young men. The less mature, the more mature. And can I call them the middle mature? I don't even know if that's a phrase. And John wrote to each group for a different reason and one that was appropriate for where they are on their journey. And while John, uh, sorry, why John repeats these statements almost word for word actually kind of puzzles a lot of the scholars if you're going in and looking at commentaries and different things. And, you know, it, it kind of puzzled me too at first. And then I read something which just kind of makes you step back and go, why didn't I think of that first, right? Wouldn't it be the simplest solution that when you want something to get special attention or sink in, you say it twice? I do that especially as a parent <laughs> with my kids. I might say something directly to my kids and then I'll say, just so that I make myself clear and I will repeat word for word what I just said to them, right? That's what I think John is doing here. It, it's simpler and it doesn't need to be, you know, dissected apart too much. But because he's repeating it, it must be something important. So structure aside, what are they being told? John writes these verses not just to make them feel better, 
but to help them know more completely some things about their salvation. From a larger bird's eye view, maybe you'll say, looking down at these different stages of the Christian life, as we follow Jesus, we should know that our salvation is true, that it's authoritative, and that it's complete. These are what he touches on. Your salvation is true because of Jesus. Jesus himself is the truth. He even says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. Your salvation is authoritative because of the Father. Because it comes from God, that's why it has authority. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, we read, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Again, Isaiah 45, 5. And this idea is all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. I jotted down just a few references. Deuteronomy 4:35, 1 Kings 8, verse 60. Five times, actually, in Isaiah chapter 45, the same chapter we just read from. Joel chapter 2, verse 27. Mark chapter 12, verse 32, and others. God is God, and there is no other. And you know him. <laughs> you know that authority. So our salvation is true because of Jesus. Our salvation is authoritative because of the Father. And salvation is complete because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. From the cross that day, Jesus himself declared, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. What Jesus has done is done, finished, complete. Am I repeating myself to make a point? <laughs> and John is writing to both remind and reassure believers of this. And it's because of this that we're able to live for Jesus in our world. Remember I mentioned at first glance those first couple of verses, verses 12 through 14, they seem a little bit out of place, or so some people say or think. They don't seem to go together with the verses before or the next verses that come. But if you understand John's reminder and John's reassurance, they actually complement the next verses beautifully, I think. So verses 12 through 14 provide the encouragement necessary to be able to heed the exhortation that they're about to hear in the next few verses. In verses 15 through 17, John continues, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's the exhortation. That's where they're headed. And so we are forgiven. We belong to God. We are part of his family. We know him as Father. There is a battle, but we are already, present tense, on into the future, victorious. And knowing this, truly knowing this, changes everything. If we know this, why would we give our heart and our affections and our times to the things of this life 
or to this world. If we know God as Father, why would we set our hearts on things that stand in opposition to Him? John knows that none of us can overcome temptation and escape error if we feel that our sins are not forgiven, that God is not knowable, and that the devil's going to win. That'd be an awful place to be in if that's what we thought. And so we need to know this, and we need to be reminded of this in every stage of our spiritual maturity. It's crazy important. We need to be encouraged. I recently read a story published in the Dear Abby newspaper column from back in 1999. And I'll share this, but I edited out some of the details to keep it a little shorter. This was from a retired teacher that wanted to share with people a lesson that was learned in the classroom. On a day when, I don't remember the whole situation, but something was going on and the students were a little agitated. And so they write this. I asked the students in the room to take out two sheets of paper and list the names of the other students in the room, leaving a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. That weekend, I wrote the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper and listed what the students had said about that individual. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list. Before long, everyone was smiling. Really? I heard one whisper. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. Years later, I was asked to attend the funeral of one of those students. I was deeply saddened by his untimely death in Vietnam. The church was packed, and after the funeral, I and many of Mark's former classmates were invited to his parents' house. And they approached us and said, we want to show you something. Mark was carrying this when he was killed. His father pulled something from a wallet. It was the list of all the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, he treasured it. A group of the classmates overheard. One smiled and said, I still have my list. It's in the top desk drawer at home. Another said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. I put mine in our wedding album, said a third. I bet we all save them, said a fourth. I carry mine with me all the time. That's when I finally sat down and cried, the teacher wrote. The lesson my former students taught me that day became a standard in every class I taught for the rest of my teaching career. I can't speak to the specifics of this story, but we all need encouragement. Every single one of us. New believers, mature believers, somewhere in the middle believers. We need encouragement in life in general. We need encouragement in our Christian life as well as we strive after Jesus. God knows this. John knew it. And John writes this text and offers these words really as a gift to lift the cloud of darkness off of our mind and off our soul and to encourage our spiritual walk. You see, John begins with one of the most simple and basic truths about Christianity. We have been forgiven of all of our sins because of Jesus' name. This speaks to both the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially the perfect atoning work that covers our sins over and forgives them. John had already written about these, some of these ideas, how Jesus cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 9. He had already written about how he's faithful to forgive those who trust in him. In Christ, your sins have been forgiven. Perfect tense. Already accomplished. There's nothing insecure about this. It's a completed fact 
because Jesus Christ has satisfied the requirements of salvation for sin. Through Jesus, we have known the Father. Perfect tense again. He's no longer our enemy. Through forgiveness of sins and God's gracious adoption into his family, we now know him as Father. And this is precisely what gives the title child its depth of meaning. Christians are children of God because they know the fatherhood of God like no one else can. And this is repeated by John because he wants us to get it and to not forget it. And John keeps using the perfect tense as he reminds his readers of this. Six times in these verses, he uses that perfect tense. Again and again, the Christian life is being celebrated as a a completed and accomplished fact, including being victorious, being a part of those who have overcome the evil one. Your debt has been paid, and while Satan, the devil, whatever name you want to give him, while he can hurl accusations at you all day long, there's not a single thing he has that can condemn you. Your salvation is complete. Verses 12 through 14 give the reminder and the reassurance. But there's also this reason so that believers will be able to do what comes next as they live out the Christian life, not of this world. And we'll touch on that reason just briefly here as we get ready to close our time together today. In the next verses, the topic now changes. So does the mood. The theme is no longer assurance. It's more of a warning. The tense is no longer the perfect tense in the next couple of verses, but it's the present imperative tense. That's the tense of command. (laughs) It's something you're supposed to do. And in the midst of assurance, believers do need to be aware of the reality of temptation. Absolutely. It's important to know, though, that what the world offers, the world cannot give. The world cannot give you what you need. The world cannot give you what it even promises. It it can't provide it. And the world cannot give you that which will last for eternity. This idea of worldliness or being of the world, the language we hear sometimes and that gets used in this passage, it's often misunderstood because I think it's often identified with current cultural issues, things that might be a particular concern to us in our time and our setting. And John is not telling us to reject any and all aspects of culture within our world. Not at all. Because a lot of our world actually reflects the glory of God, the goodness of God, the gifts of God all around us. So what John is telling us is that we're not to love and idolize and put up on a pedestal thoughts and values and behaviors that are contrary to God's word and God's will. In these verses, I'll read them again, verses 15 through 17. We are told, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In these verses, I see two main reasons that are given for why these worldly interests are wrong. 
And they're fairly simple, I think. One, they don't come from the Father. <laughs> they don't come from the God, from God. So they're wrong. Two, it's the world and its desires. They're going to pass away. They don't last forever. They don't live forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as it mentions. These are the things that partner with something already inside of me that wants more. You see, something in me wants more and thinks that I know what's best for me. And so I try to take control and take the authority for myself in situations and in life. But that's God's place, not mine. That's his place. Now, desires in and of themselves, they're not good or bad. The word desire itself, it's actually a neutral word. It's the object of that desire that will determine whether it's good or bad. You see, Jesus has brought an entirely new value system into history and into our lives. And John wants his readers to know this, to know this value system that Jesus brings, to live it, to overcome the darkness, to keep God's commands, to walk in the light, to be full of joy, to conquer hate, and to love each other with a love so real that the world around will see it and ultimately give the glory to God. It's the worldly desires that will pass away, not all desires. And we need to be reminded and reassured and come to know that what the world offers, as I said just a couple minutes ago, it cannot actually give. The world cannot give you what you need because what you need comes from Jesus and it's already been accomplished. The world cannot give you what it promises. The world promises all kinds of things. But it cannot give those to you because it doesn't hold the power or the authority. That comes only from God. And you already know him as father if you're a believer. The world cannot give you what will last because it's already been completed. And you are already victorious. You're a part of that family. These are amazing reassurances and reminders for our faith. Amazing facts about our salvation that we need to know. And they set us up for an amazing life of following after Jesus. Amen? I hope through this, the word of God, that you are both reminded and reassured wherever you are on your journey with Jesus. That's my hope and prayer for us today.